0: All right, uh, before I speak, though, um, we're going to see a short video about uh, Tuba Shvat. Uh, who knows what Tuba Shvat is? Raise your hand. Bob does, Cindy does, Don does, couple of people, Amy does. Tuba Shvat is a calendar event. It is the New Year's for trees. It's according to the biblical text when we actually count trees. Uh, uh, for the life of a tree, all right? So no matter when you plant it, we start counting at Tuba shvat, and then we go three years. Nobody does anything with the fruit. This is what the Torah speaks about. Fourth year, the fruit is dedicated to the Lord, and then you can make use of it in the fifth year. Uh, unless things have changed dramatically, most of us are not living on farms and uh, managing orchards, all right? So Tuba shvat has evolved, and uh, this video shares us a little bit about the background of the holiday, or the event, the the calendar date.
1: I just planted a tree. We are celebrating Tu B'Shvat, an ancient Jewish holiday that celebrates trees and nature. It's also called Chag Ilanot, the holiday of trees. I know what you're thinking. It's January. Well, here in Israel, it's almost springtime and flowers are blossoming. Fruits are growing, and everything's green. Traditionally, Tubi Shvat helps farmers calculate the agricultural cycle. The holiday occurs on the 15th of the month of Shvat in the Hebrew calendar, hence the name Tubi Shvat. Nowadays, the holiday is celebrated by planting trees, eating local fruits like figs and nuts, and by raising environmental awareness. Each year, over a million Israelis take part in tree planting activities run by the JNF. In the past 100 years, over 250 million trees have been planted by the JNF in Israel. It's no surprise then that Israel is one of the few countries worldwide to enter the 21st century with a net gain of trees. There's even a special song that people sing for the holiday. So now that you know about Tu B'Shvat, put on your boots and come plant a tree here in Israel. All
0: right. Okay, so uh, it's not a holiday, it's not a Chag, but it is a calendar event. And, and uh, Cindy and I, actually, Cindy reminded me of this. It is on Monday, and you'll notice if you, uh, on the announcement sheet, it says Synagogue Day of Prayer. It doesn't say Day of Fasting. And the reason is, is because it's not appropriate to fast on a, on a day of joy. And uh, I encourage you to celebrate Tu Shvat by, first of all, thanking God that you have clean air to breathe, and doing what you can to... Uh, To uh, help that along. Uh, I think Cindy makes a point. We live in a a throwaway environment today. I think we should be more conscious about what we do with all of our junk. Uh, Recycling is is something that uh, for many of us, we did not necessarily grow up with. I think younger people, it's more ingrained. I think that taking care of our environment makes a lot of sense. Uh, And uh, so to, to thank God for This planet in which he has made us the guardians of, we're responsible to maintain it. And whether or not you believe in global warming or not, it's not important. What is important is that as followers of the Messiah of Israel and the God of Israel, is to understand that the text says we're responsible for what we do. Uh, Those of us who are older can remember the pictures in the 70s where some guy would take his his engine oil and he'd dump it down the sewer and get in trouble for it. Or the Native American with a tear in his eye because somebody's throwing garbage out the car window. Thank God we have progressed. But I think that uh, this is an opportunity on our Jewish calendar to express gratitude to God and to think about what we can do uh, to also be um, responsible for this world in which God has indeed placed us. All right? So celebrate on, uh, on Monday, eat a fig. Mm-hmm. Have a fig newton, that's my preference. Uh, or some nuts, that's good too. And uh, recognize the holiday of Tuba If you can't plant a tree, although here in Chicago, it's probably going to be frozen ground. Uh, all right. I want to segue into that, though, because we're going to be talking for the next probably 16, 17 weeks about uh, what I'm calling the Messianic Jewish life, uh, the Messianic Jewish life. Last week, I spoke about faith. Do you know that all people come into right, right relationship with God by faith alone? It's always the way it's been. I know you guys uh, in the Sisterhood study, you're reading a book, and I think it's, it's a very practical book. My wife and I were discussing it last night, but it's written from a Christian perspective, Okay, and the perspective that you'll read about today—I don't know if you're going to mention it—is that for many Christians, people in the Old Testament came into relationship with God by works; that they it was it was works, all right, and that the New Testament's all about grace. That's false. It's theologically false, all right. People, you know, you're going to. There's a quote from Spurgeon. Right, he talks about this. It's it's just a misunderstanding. I know why they came up with it. All right, it it was it was because they were trying to emphasize the grace found in Messiah, and speak against. Honestly, they were speaking against Catholicism. That's why Evangelicalism is a reaction. Uh, if you know your history, Protestantism is reaction against Catholicism. All right, uh, but but when you read the Hebrew Scriptures. We must understand that all people come into right relationship with God by faith alone, and that's the way it's always been. We must recognize that Yeshua's atonement, his sacrifice, is not related to the sacrificial system at all. I mean, do you realize that? Yeshua's death is something that is eschatologically beyond it's in line with what we read about David and his sins. Think about it. David murdered and committed adultery. He should have been stoned to death. God said, Take that guy out and stone him to death. What does God do? He operates completely outside the law and provides for David forgiveness. How is that possible? God discounting his own instruction? No. We have to recognize that God has given us a Torah that gives us instruction. But God, at his will, can operate way outside it. That's what he did with Messiah Yeshua. Why why should one man's death provide atonement for all people's sin? That's just because God ordained it to be so. That's it. Maybe we'll talk about that along the way. But for the next 16, 17 weeks, what I want to talk about are different aspects of the Messianic Jewish life. Because I think that as Jews who have come to accept Messiah Yeshua, we are so, first of all, we're very influenced by evangelical Christianity. And some of that is very good. All right, There's a lot of good that we can gain from the collective knowledge of those who truly follow Messiah Yeshua from among the nations. All right? At the same time, there are things that I think do hinder us. And we have to understand this balance. We have to understand this balance. I think one thing that's difficult for us at times is that we are a minority of a minority. And when we talk about sharing our faith, many of us are probably very happy to share our faith with anybody but another Jew <laughs> because it's, it's so against generally Jewish thought that it's very difficult for us. And when we try and share, we usually get you know, shut down pretty fast or we get shut out. And yet to understand that it is our obligation to share among our people, regardless of the difficulty of it, all right? And uh, then, of course, we have to talk about, and I think Eric shared an excellent sermon on Shabbat a couple of weeks ago, about what the Shabbat means to us as a day set aside. And, it, and I appreciate Mike, Michael Ferdinand mentioning the Shabbat is, is a day, because I heard it because it was out there, you know, where we don't work. But there's a lot more to it even than that. All right, the most basic is to set the time aside in terms of our normal day, but to recognize all that, we, that it can mean for us, even beyond that. So, it's not so much the negative as the, the positive of the day, you know. Uh, so, these are things we're going to talk about for the next several weeks, and hopefully, we will find encouragement in, in them. One of the things that, uh, that motivated me to finally come to this decision was in the survey we took, many of you expressed either confusion or lack of understanding regarding spiritual gifts. You know what's interesting is spiritual gifts are discovered based on the outworking and development of your faith. Many of you remember Jason Moraff who was here just on a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Jason Moraff when he walked in here the first couple of times, didn't have a clue about anything because he, he, he had never really grown and developed enough as a believer to have any sense of what his spiritual gifts could be. And it was only through his time here and him willing to take risks, step out in faith, sometimes in sheer panic, and try things that I encouraged him to do, that he was able to discover that God had enabled him to, to, to speak, to really teach. That came as a result of his involvement here at the Emmet. You'll remember some of you, Michael, um, here, Barry, help me. Uh... Many years ago, who was an elder here, and he, Michael Simon. Michael Simon, if many of you, if you knew who Michael Simon was, Michael Simon, uh, would have never come across as anybody you could put in this pulpit, and he would be able to teach. And yet, we discovered, over time, he discovered over time, that he has this, there was a supernatural ability to teach. God had endowed him with, with the spiritual gift of teaching. And he could take a passage and unpack it in just an amazing way. And it was because he was growing in his relationship with God. He came here as a pretty solid believer in Yeshua and, and was willing to get out there and get uncomfortable and, and, and uh, do things And as a result of that. And so I think that uh, part of what we're going to do is also unpack what it means to understand your spiritual gifts and how that is the result of you living out an active Messianic Jewish life. It's as you are living out an active life of faith that you will suddenly just by by that reality discover areas of enablement, spiritual enablements that God has blessed you. This morning, what we're going to do is we are going to talk about living out a faith that draws people in. What is this? All right, what's a lighthouse do? Lights Lights the way? Warns you. What does it say? Stay away. Stay away. Don't come near. I'm sitting on a rock. Or I'm sitting on top of a bluff. Or I'm sitting on a sandbar. It says stay away. It is there to repel people. That's a lighthouse. Beautiful. But generally it is there to repel people. Growing up near San Francisco... You know, you go out in San Francisco Bay and you will see that there are little islands and some of them have lighthouses just to remind people that should know better already to stay away. Now, next slide. What is this? A what? Landing strip. And what are on those, land, that, what's on that landing strip? Lights. And what are the lights doing? Guiding the airplane to Land. It's pretty cool. You know, I fly just a little bit and I'm grateful for the fact that the landing strip is always well lit. It's there to draw the plane in. Really, it's designed. Some of them actually operate in such a way that the lights are almost in a leading formation. They're there to draw the plane in. All right, next slide. Do you recognize that our lives as believers should reflect our active faith in Yeshua and should draw people to him. You recognize that? It's extremely important. We should be drawing people to him. We should be like like runway lights that draw people. The question is, really, are we a runway light that's drawing people in, or are we actually like a lighthouse and, and repelling people, telling them to go away? You know, this is going to be the topic of, of what I want to talk about today. And, uh, and if you've got your, your notes here on the back of the announcement sheet, you can see this. But uh, I want to talk about what I call ideal godly characteristics. You know, this is part of Yeshua's talk on the hill. We're in Matthew chapter 5, so go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And I am not going to do a deep exposition of the text because we don't have the time for it, and I think it's better to just hit the big idea. Yeshua is in a time of tremendous religiosity. Everybody's religious. The Jewish community is basically a religious Jewish community. They are either um, uh, well, one way or the other. All most of them attached to the temple in Jerusalem, even though the temple in Jerusalem is corrupt. All right. Some people who got fed up with the temple in Jerusalem, they left and they, they disregarded it and they established small uh, communities, one of which is Qumran. If you ever go to Israel, visit Qumran. Um, but most of the people are very religious. And many of them, uh, they're very thoughtful and considerate in terms of how their lives are religiously. But one of the things that Yeshua consistently does is to try and contrast those who are living by the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. In fact, the talk on the hill, this this talk from Matthew 5 through 7, is all about understanding and appreciating and living out the spirit of God's instruction. Have you ever met a believer who gets the letter, but by their spirit there's nothing attractional in them? They, they 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 do not draw you toward a deeper faith, but they sure got their Bible down, and they can hit you with it in a moment. If you go, you say the wrong thing. That's not attractional. What is attractional is somebody that lives out the spirit of the text. And in doing that, draws you in. Their life is lived in such a way that it demonstrates the spirit of what God's instruction is all about. So uh, let's take a look at the text. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when Yeshua saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. I want to stop and say, if you've been to the Galilee and you've been to that area, you know we're not really talking about mountains so much as hills, all right? Uh, a friend of mine uh, just took, to, uh, took to, on this Israel trip. He, he was, um, his pastor was starting a sermon series and talking about the great big mountains of the Galilee. And the only great big mountain is the Hermon, all right? Uh, the rest of them are hills, and uh, the place where they assume Yeshua would have given these talks, these are just small hills. All right? And that, that's important because it means they're approachable. People can get up them. All right? You don't have to be a mountain climber to get to where Yeshua used to teach. He used to teach on the hill right outside of town, it was accessible. All right? And it says, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, So this is something that he is speaking. He's speaking to his disciples, but in reality, there are thousands of people potentially there, there to hear him speak. But his main objective is to teach his disciples, his Talmudim. One of the things I have found is there's two kinds of people in ministry those who want to really learn from me, and those who are just in the crowd. They're there out a curiosity or some other reason, all right? Yeshua had the same thing. People that were there for all kinds of reasons. Later on, maybe it was the food, right? The bread. It's okay, maybe the bread brought him the first time, and then later on, the message sunk in deeply, all right? But for the group that he's speaking to here, it's specifically the disciples. His Talmudim, his Talmudim. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit, people who understand their inability to please God on their own. Do you understand that? Do you understand that in and of yourself you cannot please God? It's only because of your relationship with God through your personal faith in Yeshua that you are able to please God. That's extremely important. If you think you can please God all on your own, then you need to reconsider this amazing message of the gospel that only through Yeshua. Can we approach God? In verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourners, people who recognize their needs and trust in God alone to meet them. We all have needs. Some of you have financial needs. Some of you have emotional needs. Some of you have just personal needs. Some of them are very difficult. You know, I was talking to Judy earlier, and she's still in a little bit of pain. Right, Judy? But... She she knows this is a reality, and no one can solve this but God alone. Do you have a problem that is beyond the capability of science or medicine to solve? We have to trust in God alone and ask him to meet our needs. In verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You'll notice it says, Blessed are the meek, not blessed are the weak. Meek does not mean weak. The meek, instead, are people who have humility. These are people who are humble and have a proper perspective on their lives. Humility is really, I think it's almost a lost art, all right? Humility, if we know how great God is, we also at the same time recognize how little we actually know. I got to be about 35 years of age, and I was talking to a friend of mine, and we talked about the arrogancy of our 20s. I just said that's reality. I think those of you who are now getting into your late 20s, early 30s, you're beginning to recognize how little you know. The more all of us recognize how little we know and how little we can control, the closer we are really to understanding and appreciating who God is. People who are humble and have a proper perspective on their lives, these are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who have a strong, ongoing desire for personal holiness. Is that you? Are you someone that genuinely wants to be holy before the Lord? You're easy to recognize your sin, or when you sin, you confess it, and you desire through repentance to not do it again. Though you do it again, in humility, you recognize your desire to be holy, even though it's extremely difficult for us. We are sinful people. And yet our holy God loves us. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me, despite our sinfulness. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's all because of of his amazing love and the amazing truth of the gospel message. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. People who demonstrate compassion to others as God has done for them. This is the hard one for me. I'm not such a compassionate person. What do you mean you're down? Get up, we got work to do. Just ask my kids. And I've had to learn, oh, I need to demonstrate compassion because God is so compassionate to me. I have failed. I have not met his expectation. I need to demonstrate mercy and compassion to others. Verse uh, eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. People who make exalting the Lord the priority of their lives. People that just, just desire to exalt and know God and, and uh, have that passionate desire for him. The, uh, when you think pure in heart, you're talking about, a, uh, as, as uh, Chaplain Jay Kurtz would say, a whole person, a whole person. You know, a person with, with integrity. A person that is one person. Run into a few people in the last couple of weeks who are bifurcated, and they're one way here, and they're a completely different way here. And that it never leads to purity. It always leads to impurity. A whole person is someone that is singular in mind and soul. And I think that's, that's what he's talking about, a person with a pure heart, integrity. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God, people who seek unity among others and project their peace with God. Seeking unity, unity. You know, it's easy to divide, especially our movements just so divided. But to seek unity, how do we seek unity? Learn to accept that there are just different ways of looking at things. You know, Think of our nation, how, how, how polarized our nation is. It's arrogancy, but it's also a recognition that we, are, we refuse to accept the perspective of others. We refuse to, to, uh, to recognize that there can be differing opinions. When it comes to issues of theology, okay, understanding, I mean, we recognize that. But the reality is, is that can we live at peace and actually be in relationship with other believers who do believe things a little bit different than we do? The church that meets here on, sun, on Sunday morning holds some different theology from us. But we share the same gospel message. We both believe that people come into right relationship with God by personal faith in Messiah Yeshua alone. They believe in the biblical text. They believe in the deity of Yeshua. They believe in the importance of living a righteous life before God. They have some other ideas about some other things, but you know what? They're minor. (laughs) They're good people. We have to desire to live in unity with one another. And if you're here and you can't talk to a Democrat right now because you're a Republican, and if you're here and you're a uh, uh, Democrat and you can't talk to a Republican right now, you've got to get over that. You know, I'm just pointing out what's the big issue in our nation, which is political polarization. We need to be able to speak with one another and accept the fact that we have differing opinions. Unity does not mean uniformity, all right? But it means a desire to be together. Finally... Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. People who are willing to stand for the Lord despite opposition. Despite opposition. You know, speaking of our faith and being rejected. I think back when Matt and Kim were literally kicked out of a club because of their faith in Yeshua in high school. I mean, are we willing to, to suffer loss because of our faith or because of our moral positions? You know, I mean... We live in a world where soon, I mean, some of you in the public sector, I mean, you could very easily find yourselves on the outs over things like th- what's going on in, in the gender confusion situation. I mean, we have to live at peace. It's not, they're not we, you know, we live in a great big world, but, but if people ask us, and this may come even to religious institutions soon, people may ask us or dictate to us, saying you must accept this lifestyle for yourself. And if you don't, then you are out of line with the majority and will suffer the consequences. Are we prepared to live on the margins? Are we prepared, like it says in Hebrews, to suffer with Messiah outside the gate? In verse 11, again, it says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before them. We are not prophets. We are just followers of our Messiah Yeshua trying to do something unique in terms of our Messianic Jewish community here. But we must recognize the fact that persecution should be expected. Your Messianic Jewish life will bring opposition. It will. That's the history of our Messianic Jewish community. I mean, uh, the little we know from the the New Testament text, the book of Acts, we see that. We see that in the early Messianic Jewish history recorded, uh, whether it's in uh, secular sources, well, it's mostly secular sources, but also some religious sources. Opposition is part of what it means to be a Messianic Jew. Especially today, I still say, it's interesting, the Jewish community, they don't really like us, they want us out because we challenge the whole premise that Jesus is not the Messiah. They can't have us around. The Christian community, they don't want to do it because the majority of the Christians, they think that being Jewish is, is, is no longer relevant. And so to hold on to our Jewish identity, it, it, it kind of peaks at them too, you know? So we are, there's opposition. Are we prepared for the opposition? Yeshua, he was persecuted. He was misunderstood. He was maligned. Are we prepared for that? That's what it means, partly what it means to live a Messianic Jewish life to experience opposition. We have to maintain our eternal perspective. We have to maintain our eternal perspective. God will indeed overcome, and we will one day be vindicated. Maybe not in my lifetime, hopefully in your lifetime. The last thing is the Messianic Jewish life requires a public testimony, though. And I'll end with this. It says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how shall it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I think the thought that I really want to leave us with this morning is the fact that like those lights on the runway... We need to desire to be an effective light for Messiah Yeshua to draw our people in. You know, it's funny. I know most of you are not able to come on Wednesday nights, but uh, the study on Wednesday nights just a bunch of guys. Uh, you know, three of them. I mean, Harold. I mean, um, um, Howard's there, but uh, I got several guys, not believers, you know, coming and listening and study, engaged. I think there is interest. I think there is interest for Yeshua on your job, in your neighborhood, here in our community. And we need to be lights. Obvious lights for Messiah. You're going to do it different than me. Some of you are quiet, and you'll do it in a quiet way. Some of you are loud, and you'll do it in a loud way. All of us need to be landing lights. So if people are spiritually searching, they know where to land. They know where to land. They can see by the integrity of our lives and they can see by the, the choices we make and they can see by our priorities that we're different. And it gives something to think about because they're flying around looking for a place to land. I think about uh, some of the young adults that some of you interact with. And I know that for some of them, they are lost and they're looking desperately for a place to land. And you may be the light that God desires to use in their lives. And I may be the light That God desires to use in their lives. We need to see ourselves as lights on a runway from Messiah Yeshua, guiding people to where it is they need to go. One last slide, if it works. So let's covenant before God this week to attract others to Yeshua through the godly characteristics of our lives. What we read about in Matthew 5 is simply different characteristics that we can and should be exhibiting so that as people see them, they're drawn, drawn in. And if you are doing things in your life that are affecting the lives of others that are inconsistent with this, then you have to recognize you're repelling people. Well, so identify that. Ask God to help you. I ask him for patience all the time because I'm impatient. I ask him for greater passion and mercy all the time because I am not very compassionate because I don't want to repel people. I want to draw people. I want to be attractional for people regarding the truth of who our Messiah Yeshua is.